So you've been listening to uh, a host of scholars who have uh, been training uh, for quite some time to deliver rather poignant messages to you. Uh, I am not one of those talks today. Uh, I am here uh, basically because I got married. And, um, and that changed my life. Had I not gotten married, there's no doubt in my mind I wouldn't be standing here. Uh, I wouldn't have those list of accomplishments that were just read. Uh, but marriage fundamentally changed me. And yes, for those of you who know my wife, Karen, uh, that may make a lot of sense to you. But it wasn't just the fact that I married an incredible woman, but it was the institution of marriage itself and what marriage uh, uh, impressed upon me that, that fundamentally changed uh, everything and my outlook on life. And so I'm here to talk about uh, my marriage a little bit, and I'm here to talk about uh, not one, but actually I figured I'm going to talk about two of my children today and share with you how that journey in marriage and in uh, having and raising children uh, has, uh, has impacted me. I'm going to tell stories. don't have anything, I hope, I don't think particularly uh, profound. I'm not going to give a lecture. Uh, but I hope to be able to, in communicating the story of my life and the journey of my marriage and uh, what I've done in raising these two children in particular, two children whose stories in the eyes of the world, uh, these kids would be looked at as insignificant. Insignificant in the fact that their lives were not long, uh, their abilities are not great. They would, in the eyes of the world, make little to no contribution to the economy of this country, to, to the world, and, uh, and leave nary a mark. But they had profound effect on me and subsequently, and my family, and subsequently to many more as a result of that. Uh, the title of, this, uh, of the speech today is to talk about Bella, but I'm going to begin by talking about another one of my children. Uh, because Bella's story really began with him. And Bella uh, was born in 2008. Um, but in 1996, 12 years before Bella's birth, we had another son. And his story begins uh, with a sonogram. A sonogram at 20 weeks where we found out that he had a fatal abnormality and was going to die. He was our fourth child, and I had just finished doing something I'd never thought I'd ever do in my life. But because of my marriage and because of what my marriage brought me into, which was a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, a deeper interest in my faith, because my wife and I encouraged each other in that effort, found a great church led by a great pastor, you might know him, Jerome Fasano. <laughs> uh, I'm another one of these Fasano guys. <laughs> I was already married, so I couldn't become a priest. <laughs> but he inspired both of us to a richness and depth of faith that we had not experienced before. And it led me to go out and, and see things that were morally wrong and not be afraid, as many are in the world today in politics, to get up and, and confront those. And so I went from a 
backbencher on the faith and moral issues to leading the charge on the issue, in this one, in this case, was the issue of partial birth abortion. And I had led the charge to override President Clinton's veto, and within a week of that veto debate, we had a sonogram and found out that our child was going to die. And I remember the rage that I felt, that I had been on this great path to holiness and to living faithfully and to having the courage to stand out and, and take on the great issues, moral issues of the day, and that the discernible answer that I heard from God was, I'm going to take your son. And that anger and frustration was felt by Karen and we raged against it. We did everything we possibly could to try to save his life. We thought we were successful. We had interuterine surgery, which was almost unheard of back then. And yet, a few days after that, we got the worst possible news after the surgery that Karen had an infection. And that infection was gonna cause her to go into labor and our son, who was only 21 weeks of age, was going to be born, whether we liked it or not, and he was going to die. And we sat in the emergency room waiting for that delivery, praying that some miracle might happen. A miracle did happen. At 21 weeks, he was born alive. It was three in the morning. A priest had left holy water, so we baptized him immediately, and we held him. And we could see him because he was so small and so fragile, and his skin was so paper thin. We could see his heart beating. And we held him for a lifetime, his lifetime. In the two hours that he lived, he knew only love. And we poured ourselves into him as we watched his heart slowly, 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 slow down and stop. And for a moment, ours did too. It was at that moment that I realized something that I guess I should have understood. But I realized that first, that my son was going to heaven. And secondly, and more importantly, that that was the most important thing for me as a father to be concerned about. That in the end, all that matters is the end. And all that matters is to make sure that your sons and daughters are on a path to heaven. It didn't dawn on me immediately, but over time I grabbed that and I was able to live otherworldly, to see the world in a whole different way, not of successes and losses and challenges of this world, but how that would experience, how I experienced that in its effect on the other world on the world that I was focused on. It was an amazing, liberating time. I can tell you that Karen did not feel that way. Karen was deeply grieved, very upset, and wrote and wrote, poured herself out in a series of letters before Gabriel, our son's name, and afterwards. She eventually published those letters in a book called Letters to Gabriel. And that 
was the moment that transformed her into seeing Gabriel's life as not something that was a loss. Yes, it was a loss. It continues to be a loss. I wear this pin on all my suits. It's an angel pin to remember my little son on my shoulder. So he is always with me. The pain is there. But God gave us the gift of understanding that losses and successes in this world are of less consequence to their impact on forever. And so my son Gabriel taught me to live a life focused more on faith, focused more on the ends instead of all the means to get there. There was a passage I remember, this is of my, my patron saint, as a politician was St. Thomas More, and a big portrait of him in my offices in the Capitol. And I came across this passage that I kept in my desk to remind me if I ever got bogged down by the criticisms and the critiques, to remind me of what to stay focused on. Thomas More was in the Tower of London under a death sentence from Henry VIII, was soon to be killed, and his daughter Margaret was upset with his equanimity. How all these people who used to be his friends had all turned against him. They were all calling for his head. And yet, he had no malice toward them. And so she wrote, expressing her concerns about that, and this is what he wrote back. Bear no malice or evil will to any man living. For either the man is good or wicked. If he is good and I hate him, then I am wicked. If he is wicked, either he will amend and die good and go to God, or live wickedly and die wickedly and go to the devil. And then let me remember that if he be saved, he will not fail, as I hope to be saved too, to love me very heartily, and I shall then in like manner love him. And why should I now then hate one for, while this, for this while, whom shall hereafter love me forevermore? And why should I now then be enemy to him with whom I shall in time be coupled in eternal fraternity? On the other side, if he will continue to be wicked and be damned, then there is such outrageous eternal sorrow before him that I may well think myself a deadly cruel wretch if I would not now rather pity his pain than malign his person. That is otherworldly. That is seeing the world through the eyes of faith. And this little child and his little life taught his father that incredible lesson. That is the lesson that I brought 12 years later to another sonogram. And this was a sonogram of our eighth child. And we were going through the normal things. I was very good at reading sonograms by that point, having <laughs> eight children. And the doctor kept going over certain things. Having gone through a similar experience, I knew that was not good. When they start focusing on things and start going over again and again, that's not a good thing. And one of the things that kept going over were the little baby's hands. Why would they be looking at the, a little baby's hands? Because it was a marker 
that he was looking for. And that marker was not a good marker. Our daughter Bella didn't have all the markers, but that was one she did have for a condition called trisomy 18. So we went home after the sonogram, and of course we poured into the internet to learn everything we possibly could about trisomy 18. And in summary, I'll come down to two words. No hope. It's a death sentence. 99% of these children die at or before birth. And of the ones that survive, 99% don't live a year. It's a death sentence. And we prayed and prayed and prayed that this would not be her sentence. But what, four days after she was born, we had genetic tests. She was born very prematurely. She weighed three pounds. And we got the determination that she had full trisomy 18. I reacted to that in an otherworldly way. I was mad, I was crushed, we were gonna lose our daughter. She was out there in the NICU doing reasonably well, but no hope. Karen reacted the same way she did with our son Gabriel. She was gonna fight, she was angry, she had every human emotion that you can possibly imagine. But I saw my role as the, the rock, the stable guy, the one who could hold everything together and keep my eyes on the fact that now I would have a daughter in heaven someday. And that would be okay. I accepted God's will and Karen raged against it. We ended up going, taking our, our our daughter home because she actually didn't die. She actually was doing okay. And I'll never forget the exit interview and talking to the physician before they sent her home on hospice care at 10 days old. And when they sent her home, they started to describe to us how she would die and that she would have respiratory problems because that's what mostly kills these kids. And so Karen, being a neonatal intensive care nurse by training, asked, well, could you send us home with a prescription for oxygen? And the doctor said, maybe you don't understand. Your child's going to die. You, why do anything? Well, I sat there as mama bear, stood up and explained to the doctor why we needed to care for our child. So we got the prescription for oxygen and went home on hospice. The first doctor that came to see us within a few days told us in great detail how to treat her as she was dying. The entire focus was on death. And he gave us a prescription to help calm her and soothe her as she died. It was a prescription for morphine. Well, she didn't die, and in fact, Karen was very, very specific about doing everything she could to help her. Pediatrician visits, pediatrician was kind enough to come to our house because she was immunocompromised. 
We did everything we could to give her the best possible care and to support her, not just physically, but emotionally. We would schedule birthday parties every week. And our hope was to have as many weeks of birthdays as we would have for the rest of our children's years. But it was a sense of hope and optimism that Karen brought to the table. I had no, none of that. I was focused on management. I was focused on making sure that nobody got too out of control and expectations too high to make sure that emotions didn't get carried away. And my wife hated me for it. She hated me for it. But I figured, no, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to remember that all that matters in the end is the end. A few weeks after that, uh, Karen, again, hopeful. She ordered a crib. I wasn't for ordering the crib, but she ordered a crib anyway. And I'll never forget unpacking that crib. We unpacked the mattress first. And I started to unpack the mattress and started to tear the cardboard open. And the person who was unpacking it with me was my daughter Elizabeth, who at the time was about 15. And she said to me, Dad, be careful with that box. I said, no, she was ripping it. And I said, uh, Elizabeth, be careful with that box. And she said, why? And I said, well, we may have to repack the mattress back in the box and send it back. She screamed at me. She said, you don't believe in her. You don't love her. Now, you would think that that would knock me off my pins, and it did. But, you know, I knew. I knew what was the right thing here. I knew that I had to be that person focused. And so our life continued, and it gnawed at me. Was I like that? Was I wrong in the way I was approaching this? Then Bella got sick. And the first time she got sick, it was about five months into her life. And she almost died. In fact, her heart stopped. She stopped breathing, and Karen was able to revive her. The EMTs came. At that moment, all of the hypotheticals started to come home to me. And I realized that I had not committed myself to my daughter. That faith without hope is simply resignation. It's not God's will. It's simply resignation, at least for me, to avoid the hurt and the pain of loving. It's resignation to avoid the pain of hoping for something more and having those hope dashed. 
because they don't come to fruition. I see that now. But I also see that in many respects in the world around us to many of the faithful who are very faithful and in many respects otherworldly, but so much so that they look at a hopeless situation. Oh, let's take the world around us today. And instead of engaging in hopeful activity and applying themselves with love and his passion to a better goal, resign themselves to focus on their own faith. After I learned the lesson of hope, it gave me more energy and enthusiasm, not just in my own marriage and in my own relationship with my daughter, but in engaging the world around me. People ask me all the time, how can you go out there and fight these battles and do these things? There's no hope. There's always hope. Because Christ was on the cross. There's always hope. And that we can't resign ourselves to living just lives of faith. But we have to engage ourselves to be in the world. Just simply not of the world. So my little girl taught me the importance of hope and engaging the world with love. And that's the next thing. The book, Bella's Gift, is 18 chapters, trisomy 18. So we put 18 chapters and we divided, we tried to write the book together, didn't work out so well. <laughs> Well, as you can hear, we had very different paths. And so we couldn't really write something together, so we thought it would be more helpful to write it together apart. <laughs> and so we divided the book evenly among the 18 chapters. She wrote 12, I wrote six. <laughs> it's about right, right? Women, men, right? Twice as much, it's about right. Uh, so we wrote the book together, and each chapter begins with the word love. Because Bella has been an education in love for Karen and for me and for our family, and I think for those who have encountered her. As I mentioned, It was a moment at the hospital where love, where, where that transformation for me happened. She was laying on a gurney. They were intubating her because they couldn't get her to breathe stably. And I was in there with her. And she was lifeless, barely alive, as they were trying to get air into her lungs. And she had her arm out to the side. And I put my finger, because that's all she could grab, in her hand. And she gripped it. She didn't seem to have very much life anyway, but she gripped my finger. 
And I looked at her. And all I could do was say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for not committing to you, for not being vulnerable, for not willing to put my heart in harm's way, to love you as you should. Oh, I was doing all the right things. I was making sure she got all the best care. But I wasn't all in. And at that moment, we do this. Look up. Okay, God, I got a deal for you. You get her through this, and I'm in. They got her stabilized, and I walked out of the emergency room. And as soon as I did, my phone rang. The events leading up to the emergency room visit were very traumatic. Bella was sick. She had been sick once before, but came home on oxygen and on a monitor because of respiratory problems. And she got sick again. This time, we were monitoring it, so we were right on top of it. We had monitors, and we'd see things. And so I happened to be holding her at the time, and Karen was downstairs just for a few minutes to get something. I don't remember. And she was laboring in breathing, really difficult, keeping her saturation, her oxygen saturation up. And then it seemed like all of a sudden, her heart rate started to go down to 60 to 30. And her oxygen levels went from 90 to 80 to 70 to 50 to 40. And I yelled out, Karen. And I yelled to the kids, call 911. And at that point, the heartbeat stopped, the breathing stopped. And here I am by myself in the room holding my daughter. And so I immediately got up and got her on the bed and did what I knew to do. I'm a politician. I talked to her. <laughs> you know, use that power of persuasion to get her to, to breathe. It works, you know. I mean, I'm, so I'm there, you know, come on, you know, you got to start breathing here. And the next thing I know, boom, I get knocked over to the side. My kids are in the room at that point. Karen's got an Ambu bag, and then she goes to CPR and brings her back. The EMTs come. We whisk her to the hospital, and I explain the moment I just had with her in the ER. And so we finish that. I walk out the door to the ER and in the hallway, and my phone rings. And it's my daughter, Sarah Maria. She's nine years old. She asked how Bella was. I said, I think she's stable. And Sarah Maria says, Dad, Mom saved Bella's life. <laughs> I said, yes, yeah, she did. And Dad, you didn't do anything. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's sort of the way it is when it comes to kids. After that, we uh, were in the hospital for a better part of a month. She was on a ventilator for three weeks. 
touch and go for the longest period of time. But she survived. And I was there every moment of every day. Our friends and family, if there's, some of you may know people with children with disabilities. And many of you may say, well, we don't know what to do. Do something. Don't be quiet. Encourage, love, support, be there. There were so many great friends who were there and so many others who didn't know what to do and so they didn't do anything. And believe it or not, that hurt because when you're dealing with a child with a disability, particularly one of some severity, it is every minute of every day. We talk in the book, it's called Bella's Gift, but it could be called Bella's Cross. Because children with disabilities are a cross. But just like every cross, if you view it through the eyes of faith, it's a gift. The world looks at these children as less. And particularly for this family of the Catholic world, we can't be that way. We have to look at the gift that they are, teacher of souls. Bella has taught me so much. And I love her. Even though Bella can't do anything for me, Bella can't talk. Bella can't walk. Bella can't feed herself. In fact, I could list a whole bunch of Bella can'ts. But I can list the one thing she can do. Bella can love. Maybe not in the way that is sophisticated, but Bella loves. In the end, what really matters? All of that worldly stuff. I remember standing at the crib side of Bella and looking at her and thinking those very thoughts. That when I get older, she'll never be able to get me a cup of soup or a pair of slippers or anything. She won't and can't do anything for me except love me. And it dawned upon me that that's how the Lord looks at us. We are disabled. Compared to him, Bella is an Olympic track star in the world today compared to us versus the Lord. We are profoundly disabled. I don't care how smart you are or accomplished you are. The Lord looks at us as completely helpless and all he wants from us is to love him. Bella is such a great teacher. Children with disabilities are such a great teacher and the world despises them as users of resources. This community, this Catholic community cannot accept that worldly view. And it's not just about the public policy positions you have on it. 
It's how you live and interact with the people in your world who are dealing with children with disabilities. I ended up running for office for president in 2012 because of Bella. There was something called Obamacare that was being debated at the time, and I knew because once you get into the world of disabilities, you realize how other countries around the world, particularly those with socialized medicine, treat the disabled, or should I say, don't treat the disabled. And so for me, as a dad, as Bella's dad, and showing my love for her was to go out and fight for her and others like her. In the book, we tell stories of horrible stories of other countries and how children like Bella are euthanized. Not to say they aren't here in this country, it's more subtle. And we have stories about that too, of parents who don't know any better or want to avoid the pain and take the easy way out by letting go. It is the easy way out, but as we all know, the easy way is almost never the best way. And so I decided to get out and start talking about Obamacare and fighting against its passage. And I would do anything to try to get publicity. I mean, I was on, at the time, Fox, and would talk a little bit about that during Fox, but I, I tried to see if I could get out and get engaged more in 2010, and I got an invitation to speak in Iowa. And... Um, I didn't go, but eventually, as I was looking for ways to try to get out there, I thought, well, okay, it's another invitation. They weren't going to pay me for the speech, but that's okay. I'll go out there and, and see what I can do. And so we, uh, as we did with all my talks when I would speak around the country, I, I notified the press that I was going to be there, and I got a call from one of the uh, papers, Politico. And they called me and, and said, uh, hey, I, we see you're going to Iowa. I said, yeah. I'm giving a speech out there. And he said, uh, so you're running for president. <laughs> I said, um, I'm going to give a speech. I said, it's going to be about health care and about, you know, uh, terrorism and, and the like. And he said, oh, so you're not running for president. I said, well, no, I didn't say I'm running or not running. So, oh, so you are running for president. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm not yes or no. I'm just, I'm just going to give this speech. And so I hang up the phone. A few hours later, I'm at my mother-in-law's house in Pittsburgh, and we're sitting here watching Fox, and the next thing we know, my mother-in-law screams. <laughs> and, and we all looked over. She says, Rick, you're running for president. <laughs> it's right there on the crawl on Fox News. And so Politico publishes this thing saying, and, because it turns out in this guy's mind, you don't go to Iowa unless you're running for president because there's no other reason to go to Iowa. So I went to Iowa. I showed up at this speech in, in Dubuque, and uh, well, 250 people, the place was sold out, C-SPAN cameras, national news media. Now you're talking about a guy who, four years prior, lost my reelection by the largest margin of any incumbent senator in 30 years. <laughs> and they show up. And I thought, wow, this is great. Live C-SPAN, I get the, so I went to New Hampshire. And I started going to other places, and they cover me. 
And so lo and behold, I decided to run for president. <laughs> now I know that doesn't sound very calculated, but that's sort of the way things work in my life. And everybody, particularly Sarah Maria, a lot of my kids were really excited about me doing this. There was one holdout, you can imagine. And um, I said, you know, I went to her and I said, you know, I, we're reaching a point where I think we have to make a decision here. And her response was no. I said, well, I haven't asked the question yet. <laughs> and I said, uh, I really feel like God's calling me to do this. I mean, there's just too many odd things that are happening here. It's just the path is like opening up. And she said, no. And I said, well, look, I mean, I really, f I want you to pray about this. You know, if you, if you really want, <laughs> you know, come on guys, you know, right? Get them to pray about it. Yeah. So I want you to pray about this. No. I, no, you can't do that. That's bad. It's invalid. You have to at least agree to pay or pray about it. No. God could not possibly want you to do this. I said, okay. I'll put you down as undecided right now, and we'll talk about it again in a few weeks. <laughs> so time went on, and she sort of got the, got the mojo and understood it. And, and as she said to me, she goes, I always knew you were going to do this because I always felt that's what God wanted you to do. But I don't want it. And I said, Karen, how could you want it? It's horrible. It's horrible running for president. But we went out there and ran. We had no money. But I went to Iowa. <laughs> I did 385 town hall meetings in less than 10 months. Average attendance, 12 people. <laughs> I am not easily dissuaded. <laughs> but we kept working, and throughout this whole time, during the debates, everything that was going on, I was out there on the end. No one was asking me questions. If I got a question, it was always on abortion or marriage. I was the social conservative candidate, and they were trying to marginalize me as much as I could. I was that religious crazy. And so I just kept at it and had no money. Money never came in. Ended up spending $23,000 on television in the state of Iowa. Yet on election night, a miracle happened. And we ended up winning, not that night, two weeks later, the Iowa caucuses. It was a miracle. We came out of absolutely nowhere and we were able to win. And all of a sudden, the campaign is alive, and things are going great. And then we ended up losing the next two states, New Hampshire and, and South Carolina. And now I wasn't the leading contender anymore against Romney. It was somebody else. And so we were having thoughts, well, is this race going anywhere? Did we miss our chance because we didn't get the win when we thought we should have on Iowa? And maybe it was just not to be. Well, then Bella got sick. And I remember, I happened to be home, believe it or not, everybody was uh, unveiling their taxes. You know, Mitt Romney wasn't releasing his tax form, so everybody was releasing their taxes, because he did. And so nobody really cared about my taxes. I didn't make any money anyway, but I went home anyway, because I, I used TurboTax, so I had to go do my own taxes. <laughs> and so I went home, and I had to do my own, I'd, you know, I didn't have any staff, I mean, so I went home to get my taxes. 
so I could report them. And that night she got sick. We ended up taking her to the hospital. She was almost as bad as she was three years before when she was in the hospital. And we took her in and they did an x-ray and both of her lungs were full of fluid. She had pneumonia. And so I called my office. This was four in the morning. I was supposed to go back to Florida. And I said, we're suspending the campaign. And uh, said, well, you, why? I mean, we have to tell the press why. You can't suspend it because if you suspend it and you don't say why and you've lost the last two states and you're not doing well in this one, they're going to think you're out of the race and then the campaign's over. I said, I, I want to keep Bella's privacy. They said, well, why don't you just ask people to pray for her? And so that's what we did. We said, she's sick. Please pray for her. And the campaign suspended. So we went home. Went, excuse me, went to the hospital. And the two of us, after a year of being on the campaign trail, we spent time, just the two of us, in that hospital room with Bella, who was struggling mightily just to breathe at highest levels of oxygen they could do, forcing air into her lungs without putting her on a ventilator. We didn't want to do that. And we sat there and we prayed. And it was pretty clear to me that things were, that this was God's sign that this was over, that we had done what we did. It wasn't meant for us to win, but it was meant for us to be here to make a statement of some sort. And so we sat there throughout the night and didn't sleep. But something strange happened. Bella wasn't getting worse. She always gets worse. You know, kids at night, they always get worse. They don't get better. But she was getting better at night when she was tired and having trouble breathing, yet she was doing better. And as the morning came, they said, we're going to take another x-ray. And they brought back the x-rays, and they sort of dropped them in front of us. And both of her lungs were perfectly clear. Now, this is a girl with immunocompromised who has chronic lung infections. And in less than 24 hours, a miracle happened. Well, that was a sign for me to get back out there. And for Karen, too. We thought, okay, God, we get it. So the very next day, we thought, okay, we'll give it 24 hours just in case God changes his mind. <laughs> and that was a Sunday, and so we called and told our staff, we're going to go back on the road. We Forget Florida. We're going to go to Missouri. And so within less than 24 hours, we set up an event at St. Charles County, right outside of St. Louis, for an event to talk about manufacturing. And I said, can you, can you get a crowd together? It's Sunday, and this is Monday morning. And they said, we'll do our best. So I remember flying out there Monday morning, got there and drove into the place, and I see all these people outside the facility that were supposed to have this event. And so I freaked out. I said, I knew they couldn't put this together that quickly. They, the, the door's not even open. And so I called my staff and said, you got to get the doors open. And so we're driving. So we finally pull up and, and I'm saying, you know, get the doors open. And so I get out of the car and I said, you know, can we get the doors open? And my staff's like, what are you talking about? I said, well, all these people out here, we got to get them inside. We got to get the door open. And they said, this is the overflow. So there are 400 people inside. And I walked in there and two things I saw. Obviously, people... More, more excited and enthusiastic than I'd seen in months 
And I saw two things. I saw a whole bunch of people on the front row in wheelchairs. I'd never seen them before. But they came. And I saw a little girl on her daddy's shoulders. She was a Down syndrome girl. Trisomy 21. She too had an extra, 20, extra chromosome. This was trisomy 21, not 18. She was the cutest little thing. And she was holding a sign that said, I'm for Bella's dad. The campaign changed. Our best volunteer from that point forward with a young man in Oklahoma City who was disabled in a wheelchair, who sat hour after hour after hour making phone calls all over the country for us. Bella had given them a voice. She stopped a presidential campaign. A little girl that the world would see as nothing. Because we gave witness to her value, gave hope to others. Ladies and gentlemen, Mother Teresa says, all, my favorite quote of hers, God does not call on you to do great things, but to do little things with great love. I am blessed to have a little oracle of love of God's grace in my life. Each of you have one somewhere. See God's grace in that loved one. And be not afraid to go out and witness to that dignity of life. Thank you and God bless you.